Right now, the Biden administration is dealing with two major military conflicts in two separate parts of the world. And the desire to actually secure funding for the conflicts involving Israel and Ukraine was supposed to be it was supposed to be the reason that moderate Republicans voted in a far voted in a far right speaker of the House. With the intraparty war over House leadership resolved, the idea was that those emergencies would finally be dealt with. At least that was the idea. Today, it became painfully obvious that the Republicans' new speaker, Congressman Mike Johnson, is not really going to deal with any of it. This evening, Speaker Johnson put every Republican on the record voting for a bill that did not include any aid to Ukraine and which would provide aid to Israel only on the condition that Congress defunded the IRS to allow billionaires to cheat on their taxes. We have obligations and we have commitments and we want to protect our, our, and help and assist our friend uh, Israel, but we have to keep our own house in order as well. You're just saying you will not pass Israel aid bill unless it's offset. Is that the correct interpretation of your that's, that's what we're going to do. I did not uh, attach that for political purposes, okay? I attached it because, again, we're trying to get back to the principle of fiscal responsibility here. Okay, before we go any further here, it has to be pointed out that a bill that cuts funding to the IRS does not do anything to get back to the principle of fiscal responsibility. In fact, the head of the IRS estimates that cutting that funding would actually cost the U.S. $90 billion in tax revenue, which is plainly obvious. If you defund the tax police for rich people, rich people end up paying less taxes. It it should be noted that that Speaker Johnson and House Republicans are once again very concerned about the debt with a Democrat in the White House. They were far less concerned when Donald Trump added almost $8 trillion to the debt in a single term, in part due to massive tax cuts that Republicans passed to benefit the wealthy. I see a pattern here. And tonight, Republicans voted overwhelmingly to pass that bill tying aid for Israel to what is effectively aid for billionaires. So the domestic politics here are transparent. But the global consequences could be damning. Thomas Friedman writes today in The New York Times, thank goodness Johnson was not the speaker during World War II. He and his myopic members might have pressed to fund the war against the Germans in Europe, but not against the Japanese in the Pacific or they would have agreed to lend lease assistance for the Allies only if President Franklin Roosevelt would eliminate the IRS altogether. If it feels as if House GOP leaders are small thinkers in a big time, it's because they are. They are shameless, shameful, and dangerous. They are also apparently wasting a whole lot of everybody's time. Senator Chuck Schumer has already declared Speaker Johnson's bill dead on arrival in the Senate. And Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has already embraced the idea of keeping Israel aid tied to Ukraine aid, which puts him directly at odds with the Republican Speaker of the House. Do not be mistaken into thinking that Senate Republicans have it together, though. Last night, Republicans took to the Senate floor and spent four hours fighting with a fellow Republican after Senator Tommy Tuberville refused to give up his months-long blockade on military appointments as a protest, a one-man protest, over the Defense Department's abortion policy. I really respect men of their word. 
I do not respect men who do not honor their word. If this is the norm, who the hell wants to serve in the military when your promotion can be canned based on something you had nothing to do with? And it's simply a, in my opinion, a, an abuse of the powers we have as senators. We're going to look back at this episode and just be stunned at what a national security suicide mission this became. Today, the Senate was finally able to break through the Tuberville blockade for a few hours and individually confirmed three military leaders. But Senator Tuberville has blocked almost 400 nominations, and he does not seem to be going anywhere. So this whole thing is not over yet, nor is the battle over aid for Israel and Ukraine. Meanwhile, House Republicans would rather be working on something else entirely. Last night, at least 50 House Republicans all appeared together for an interview, I guess you call it an interview, with Sean Hannity. If, if that alone wasn't weird enough, this is what happened. Is this leading to impeachment? We're going to follow the truth where it leads because we have a constitutional responsibility to do so. We're on it and we're going to continue. Let me scan the room. How many of you think that that's where this is headed? Please raise your hand. Wow. The whole room. Thank you all. Joining me now is Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat of California. He is also, of course, a candidate for the California Senate seat from California. Congressman, thank you for being here. I just would like to first get your reaction to the process, I guess we could call, that Speaker Johnson has led in the House. Thomas Friedman asserts that Johnson is either too inexperienced or too ideological or both to see the geopolitical reality of what this is. Um, what do you think he is? Well, I think uh, Tom Friedman is probably right on both regards, uh, that uh, a lack of experience and, you know, frankly, a lack of substance, uh, a lack of seeing the big picture, a willingness to to be small uh, and not consider what's at stake, uh, not consider how the rest of the world is going to interpret this partisan bill uh, on Israel that was saddled with this poison pill uh, of letting off the hook uh, wealthy tax cheats. Apparently, wealthy tax sheets are a core constituency for the Republicans, and that takes precedence over support for an ally like uh, Israel at a time of war. Um, I, I do think more particularly, as you mentioned in the outset, these are small, the petty, partisan thinkers at a time when the world has huge challenges. Uh, and he's going to have to learn fast. He's going to have to grow fast because uh, the, the, the world demands it. Uh, we need to support our ally Israel. We need to support our ally Ukraine. We need to make sure that we can provide humanitarian relief for Palestinians being used as human shields by Hamas. Uh, we need to be able to do it all. Uh, and this was a terrible start of a speakership. Do you think that he is just going mean, to... Right now, it looks as if there's a real a continuing intraparty war between Republicans in the upper chamber and Republicans in the lower chamber. Mitch McConnell does not approve at least in terms of what he said, of what Speaker Johnson is doing, decoupling the aid, uh, Ukraine aid from Israel aid. How do you think this ends? I, I think it ends with our providing aid to Israel, uh, aid to Ukraine, and I hope it uh, ends up being uh, jointly done and in a bipartisan fashion. 
But, you know, McConnell is, you know, looking at playing the same game in the Senate, frankly, just on the other aid package. Uh, with Israel aid, the Republican House Speaker wanted it tied to, uh, you know, the Republican dream of letting off wealthy tax cheats. Uh, in the Senate, McConnell is dreaming of combining Ukraine aid, apparently, with some uh, Republican harsh border uh, bill. Uh, neither of those poison pills belong in these emergency aid packages. Uh, historically, they never have. We've taken up things individually, particularly during a time of war. Uh, and uh, I hope at the end of the day, we get to the place we should have started at. But the fact that it's going to take time and it's going to involve the kind of division which was showcased in the House today, uh, you know, is just a welcome sign for, for Putin. It's a welcome sign for Hamas. Uh, and it's a welcome sign for Iran and their other uh, terrorist uh, organizations they back. Meanwhile, the Republicans in the House have at least 50 of them have time to sit for an interview, interview with Sean Hannity and raise their hand uh, in support of an impeachment proceeding or an impeachment process for President Biden. I want to play a little bit of sound uh, from Speaker Johnson talking about the impeachment process. This is from today. I do believe that very soon we are coming to a point of decision on it. What you're seeing right now is a deliberate constitutional process, not the way the Democrats did it. Snap impeachments, sham impeachments and all the rest. So Congressman, you were intimately involved in the impeachment proceedings in the House. What do you make of this current Speaker of the House calling the way Democrats did it was a snap impeachment, a sham impeachment? Well, he has a very short memory, apparently. Uh, we investigated, as you know, uh, during a lengthy period of time, the president's Russia misconduct. We didn't bring impeachment proceedings, although many were urging us to do so at the time. It wasn't until his uh, even more serious Ukraine misconduct was discovered that we initiated impeachment proceedings. Uh, and so he has a very short uh, and, and uh, evidently very inaccurate memory of things. But what we understood is once we announced an impeachment investigation, that was going to gather great momentum. It's why we held off for so long. Uh, but by Kevin McCarthy announcing an impeachment investigation in the hopes that throwing that red meat to his base would save his speakership, neither saved his speakership uh, nor was the right move for the country because it created this momentum, this, this uh, train moving forward that now uh, may appear irresistible to these Republicans that, uh, you know, are so uh, in the thrall of people like Sean Hannity and Donald Trump. Well, and the speaker is in turn in thrall to the far right conservative MAGA base, if you will, in his own conference. Speaking of which, there was movement yesterday to expel George Santos uh, from Congress. The vote failed 179 to 213. I know you missed that vote last night. There were also 31 Democrats who voted not to expel Congressman Santos. One of them was your colleague, uh, Jamie Raskin. I wonder, how would you vote if you could vote tonight? Uh, I would have voted to expel him. Uh, and but for uh, two canceled flights, I would have been there to vote to expel him. Uh, the evidence, you know, against Santos is, I think, pretty overwhelming. Uh, the Republicans understand that just as well as we do. Uh, but they they want his vote anyway. They will take the vote of a serial liar uh, any day of the week uh, to prop up uh, their very weak, fragile, divided majority. Uh, and while I understand the argument of some of my Democratic colleagues uh, who opposed uh, the motion to expel him, uh, I think you have to look at the quantum of evidence uh, and not simply a way to conviction, because we ought to have a higher standard in the House 
than mere conviction of uh, multiple felonies. Congressman Adam Schiff, someone who still believes in standards in the House of Representatives. I think that the other side of the aisle is doing much to disabuse that notion. Congressman Schiff, thank you for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Now I want to turn to Sam Stein, Deputy Managing Editor for Politics at Politico. Sam, thank you for being here. Um, what, do de- what do Democrats do with Mike Johnson leading the House of Representatives? Well, I think they have to wait and see which direction this goes in. I mean, he's done two things at once that are a bit contradictory. One is that he signaled to uh, Senate Republicans that he does support Ukraine aid. Uh, he has said he supports aid for Israel. But he's also, uh, in the other direction, put this provision in uh, for an Israel-only package that he knew would never get adopted by the Senate. And so Democrats on the Hill that we talked to, and including in the White House, frankly, are in this kind of wait-and-see approach. Uh, They don't know the guy particularly well. They have almost negligible time having negotiated with him. I think he had met with Joe Biden or White House officials twice, and it was uh, fairly ceremonial prior to this. And so they're kind of measuring him out, seeing what he's like. And ultimately, they're going to have to engage him. It's just a question of when and what kind of leverage they can bring to it. Well, they're going to have to engage him and he's going to have to engage them, too. Right. Or at least he's going to have to engage some of the people who are standing in opposition to him. The Senate is going to throw this back in his face. And I I guess I wonder what you think Johnson's next move is there. I mean, he knows he made the Republicans in his conference take this vote knowing it was dead on arrival in the Senate. Right. right? So, yeah. And and this is. (laughs) This is the same problem that Kevin McCarthy essentially faced, right? At some point, you probably do have to anger a portion of your caucus. uh, And how much you anger them could very well determine how long you hold on to the speakership. For McCarthy, it was funding the government for a matter of months. And once he did that, it was over. And keep in mind uh, that the impeachment stuff that you were just talking about with Adam Schiff, Kevin McCarthy launched an impeachment inquiry without a vote precisely to buy himself more time uh, with the hardliners in his caucus. And that did not do the trick. Uh, So now Mike Johnson faces basically the same issue, right? Uh, How long can he placate those members of his caucus uh, before he has to bring to the floor a vote to fund the government, uh, potentially fund Ukraine, and fund Israel? And what kind of concessions can he maybe extract that would make it more palatable uh, to the conservatives. They still have that uh, small threshold that allows them to uh, oust a speaker if they choose to do so. Well, not only do they have that sort of legislative reality or that sort of parliamentary um, reality in their in their grip, there's also the example right. of Tommy Tuberville sitting in the Senate getting absolutely destroyed by his colleagues <laughs> in his party for this one-man campaign that has borne no fruit, that has held up 400 military appointments that he's been at since February of this year, and he's not shutting it down. I kind of wonder to what degree, you know, House Republicans look at that and say, you know, that's that's the kind of guy I want to be. Right. Well, I empathize with Tommy Tuberville. That's how my colleagues uh, feel about me. And they say (laughs) it to me all the time. And so it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, But it was I think it was Mitt Romney uh, in a clip who said something about uh, the ability of uh, one or two people to just sort of muck things up, right? Uh, and it used to be that you would kind of be a pariah, right? You would, you know, get embarrassed by it. Um, and ultimately, they would work around you. Uh, but in the modern day of uh, politics, um, Tommy Tuberville 
frankly, is a hero to a lot of people on the right. Uh, he has no, he's shown no willingness to back off uh, what he's doing. Uh, there's very few points of leverage, uh, absent a, a, a sort of ambitious rules change that they could hold over him. And if you talk to people in Alabama, uh, they respect him for what he's doing. And that really gets uh, to the incentive structure that I think you're talking about, right? Which is for modern politicians, um, the thing to do now is to sort of stick your neck out, uh, do something uh, that would have been in the other era considered crazy and outrageous, uh, earn accolades uh, from your base, fundraise uh, a ton of money, and uh, sort of bask in the idea that you've become a hero to the right. And I think Tommy Tuberville is a great example of that. Well, yeah, I mean, this sort of diminishment of American politics, it used to be, I mean, the bad, the bad development used to be Republicans putting party before country. Now it's just putting themselves before anything else to the, at the expense of their own party. These campaigns are being waged. Sam Stein, thank you, my friend, for your time tonight. It is great to see you. Always a pleasure, Alex. We have a lot more this evening. Senate Democrats and Republicans are squaring off over Justice Clarence Thomas and his relationships with some very wealthy friends. Plus, we have some breaking news about Donald Trump, his gag order and the Supreme Court. That is next. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs. Streaming. Game console. Consoling. Smart thermostat. Set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast. Reliable. Able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust. Video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. We have some breaking news this evening. Lawyers for Donald Trump have filed an emergency motion in the D.C. Circuit Court to appeal a gag order placed on him by Judge Tanya Chutkin in the federal case surrounding Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Trump's lawyers write President Trump's uniquely powerful voice has been a fixture of American political discourse for eight years and central to the American fabric for decades. The prosecution's claim that Trump's core political speech suddenly poses a threat to the administration of justice is baseless. Trump's lawyers further make it clear that they want to take this issue all the way to the highest court in the land. If the court denies this motion, President Trump requests that the court extend its administrative stay for seven days to allow him to seek relief from the U.S. Supreme Court. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former district attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Joyce, thank you for being here as we parse this breaking news here. Um, first of all, on its face, it doesn't seem that surprising that Trump is appealing anything because that seems central to his defense strategy. But what do you make of the idea that he wants to take this to the Supreme Court and in re relatively short order? So I think that's not surprising at all. This is a notice of appeal combined with a request first for a quick administrative stay of the gag order 
so he can go back, presumably, to talking about witnesses and others involved in the case. Um, and then he asks for a full stay pending appeal. So it's a little bit of complicated legal maneuvering. Ultimately, it could go up to the Supreme Court if, as I think most people expect, this uh, appeal will be not particularly productive for Trump in the Court of Appeals. Just to sort of bring in some other data points on that, I mean, Trump has some interesting bedfellows here in his fight against the SCAG order. The ACLU is one of them. They believe this is an, infringe- an infringement on his First Amendment rights. Do you think there's any—you sound pretty— I'm pretty confident that the Supreme Court is not going to find for Trump on this. But is there any merit to the appeals on its face? So there's a difference between motions that ultimately may not help a defendant and motions that are frivolous. And this one isn't frivolous. They'll be making an argument about a high level of scrutiny for gag orders involving political figures. And as Trump's lawyers point out in this brief that they've submitted tonight— a court has never imposed a gag order on a leading presidential candidate. Of course, that's because no leading presidential candidate has ever been under indictment while they've been running before. But there are some legitimate legal issues that the court can consider here. Joyce, I got to ask you, because there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot happening in, in the criminal court system as it pertains to Donald Trump. And Jack Smith's office filed a motion this morning urging Judge Cannon, who is, of course, the federal judge overseeing the Mar-a-Lago case down in Florida, urging her not to be manipulated by Trump's defense team, which is at once asking to push off the Washington, D.C. case, but also saying a packed calendar prevents them from being part of the Florida case on the timetable thus established. They're basically trying to have their cake and eat it, too. And Jack Smith's office seems to have taken notice of that and is urging Judge Cannon to effectively ignore the entreaties being made by Trump's defense team. I found it interesting that they so directly and personally are asking the judge not to be literally manipulated in an official court filing. Did that seem unusual to you? I think it's a reflection of where they are in this case. Judge Cannon was always going to be a tough judge for them. They knew that because of the proceedings in front of her previous to this criminal case, where she had gone off on sort of a crazy civil theory before the 11th Circuit reined her in. But this direct use of the language, don't let them manipulate you, I think suggests that they're frustrated with her rulings. She's clearly been um, not measured and not balanced in deciding issues that involve Trump's ability to delay the case. And so they're pointing out that he's trying to delay all cases using the same argument, playing one judge off the other. That's in a sharp contrast to this motion that we see regarding the gag order tonight, where they're asking for speed, almost unheard of speed, telling the Court of Appeals that they want a decision just in shortly over a week, which would barely provide sufficient time for briefing on this gag order request. So a very interesting discrepancy between trying to delay the trial while preserving Trump's rights to go out in public and say whatever he'd like to about witnesses and court personnel. Yeah, interesting tactic that maybe gives rise to an incoherent strategy more broadly. But Joyce, I have to ask just from a you know, lawyerly perspective, is it a bad move to get so personal with a judge? I mean, does that help Jack Smith's case or does it hurt it to suggest, uh, however, however much of it is subtext, that Judge Cannon has been manipulated by Trump and his defense? 
So, look, I think it suggests that they think they have nothing left to, to lose with this judge. They tried early on to play nice, to be respectful, to move forward in an even-handed fashion. That has not worked for the prosecution. They may now be regretting, you know, they may have a little bit of buyer's remorse over trying to not posture the case early on so that they could rest, request a recusal. If they do that now, they run a great risk of slowing down the case themselves by doing that. So they'll do their best to try to encourage the judge to not give in to these sort of manipulative efforts by Trump's lawyers. And this is familiar territory for federal prosecutors when you have a defendant who's facing trial or proceedings in more than one jurisdiction. It's not unheard of for them to try to play off one judge against the other and get cascading delays. So what the special counsel's office is doing here is just a very straightforward heads up to the judge saying, don't be taken in by this. We're letting you know what's going on in all of the cases. And perhaps ultimately where this will be headed is that the judges will all put their heads together and confer on scheduling. I suspect that's what all of the prosecutors would like to see happen. Yes. And all the judges have cell phones, presumably. They can talk to each other. They don't need to go through Trump's defense. Joyce Vance, thank you for your time and and thoughts. Super helpful tonight as we try and understand all of this. I appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. When we come back... Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is against cancel culture, except when he is for it. We will explain. Plus, Justice Clarence Thomas was the subject of heated debate today. Going to have more on that coming up next. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents... Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. You find this relaxing? Oh, yeah. It's away from the sort of the meanness that you see in in Washington. And you get here with just the regular folks. And it's so pleasant. For years, that motor coach has been a centerpiece of Justice Clarence Thomas's everyman persona. Thomas has talked about the coach. He's done interviews on the coach. And he's otherwise made a show of how darn regular he is by driving through America and talking to people he meets in Walmart parking lots along the way. The inconvenient detail here is that, according to the Senate Finance Committee, it appears that Justice Thomas did not pay for that RV. And that RV did not come cheap. Last week, the committee, responding to reporting in The New York Times earlier this year, released a report. And the report asserts that Justice Thomas received a loan of $260,000 from a wealthy friend named Anthony Welters so that Thomas could buy that 40-foot luxury motor coach back in 1990. 
1999. And apparently, Clarence Thomas only paid $20,000 in interest on that loan. And maybe, quite possibly, that is all. According to the committee report, based on the documents reviewed by committee staff, Welters forgave a substantial amount or even all of the principal balance of his loan to Clarence Thomas. Justice Thomas, through a lawyer, told The New York Times that the Thomases made all the payments until the terms of the agreement were satisfied in full. But Thomas would not answer questions about what the terms were and what satisfied practically meant. And so journalists and Senate Democrats are skeptical, especially given the fact that this new revelation comes on the heels of a series of bombshell reports by investigative journalists at ProPublica detailing how Justice Thomas has been the recipient of lavish gifts and trips and investments from wealthy friends, including billionaire Harlan Crow, all through the last 25 years. And Justice Thomas has not disclosed any of it. Now, Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee are pushing for more details here, and they have been following up on the media reports with fact-finding of their own. Today, during a committee meeting, Democrats clashed with Republicans over their plans to subpoena Harlan Crow for more information about his gifts to Justice Thomas. They also want to subpoena another Republican donor, a man named Robin Arkley, as well as conservative activist Leonard Leo both of whom have flatly refused to cooperate with the committee's investigation. Let us be very clear about what is going on here. Billionaires who are invested heavily in influencing the Supreme Court have been caught giving enormous secret gifts to individual justices. You all ought to be ashamed of yourself because you're the ones who always profess how you're defending our democracy. You're the ones undermining our democracy. The highest court in the land cannot have the lowest standard of ethics in the government. This is a fight you want, you're gonna get it. The panel is set to vote next week on whether to issue those subpoenas, so stay tuned. When we come back tonight, Israel says its troops have now completely encircled Gaza City and are engaged in face-to-face battles with Hamas. The, quote, concept of a ceasefire, according to an Israeli military spokesman, is currently not on the table at all. That, as key voices here in the U.S., urge Israel to change its approach. We'll have more on that next. If you are in our country on a student visa and you're making common cause with Hamas, I am canceling your visa and I'm sending you home. This weekend, Florida governor and Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis explained that if elected president, he wants to cancel the visas of any students he perceives are making common cause with Hamas. DeSantis focused a significant portion of that speech, not just on Israel, but on colleges. Now, the governor has made a boogeyman out of higher education for a while now, picking fights against history lessons on race and racism, as well as diversity, equity and inclusion programs. But in this speech, he tied those educational boogeymen to discrimination against Israel. This whole thing of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's anti-Israel. It's anti-Jewish, 100% if you take that to the logical conclusion. 
So Governor DeSantis wants to censor all of it. He does not want colleges to talk about race or gender or apparently Gaza. And he is not alone. The New York Times reports that groups that have led campaigns to oust school board members and remake state curriculums have also jumped into the fray. Parents Defending Education, a conservative nonprofit organization, says that it fights indoctrination in the classroom and started tracking incidents in which school district leadership appeared to criticize Israel. And Moms for Liberty, a national conservative group, has warned that progressive school administrators are being trained at the same universities allowing anti-Semitic protests. Joining me now is Peter Beinart, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents magazine. Peter, thank you for being with me tonight. Um, I wonder what you think the net effect is of having anti-woke organizations like Moms for Liberty jump into the fray here. I mean, this is just an extension of the incredible hypocrisy we've been seeing from conservatives over the past few years about this. On the one hand, they rail against cancel culture. They attack liberal snowflakes who don't have the stomach for real debate. And then they go and they try to ban books or ban content that discusses LGBT themes. And now they're just extending that to the Israel-Palestine debate. If they're so confident about their position in defense of the Israeli government, uh, in its policies in Gaza or whatever, then have the self-confidence to have those debates on college campuses, which is what's supposed to happen on college campuses, as opposed to what DeSantis is doing, which is ordered Florida to shut down the Palestinian groups on the campuses of the Florida universities. I do wonder if you think the transparent political goals of these groups and of someone like Governor DeSantis has an effect on the sort of contours of the fracture among Democrats and the sort of different wings of the Democratic Party that are arguing for more or less support of Israel as it wages war in Gaza. Well, I mean, what I would hope Democrats would agree on, regardless of their position on Israel's policies in Gaza, is that people should have the right to openly debate Israel's policies in Gaza. It's not actually just Ron DeSantis. The Anti-Defamation League has also called on the uh, uh, for an investigation of these pro-Palestinian student groups. It was roundly condemned just this week by the ACLU for doing that. What I think Democrats should agree on is, regardless of your position, students have the right to articulate their positions without being shut down by campus administrators. I do wonder, Peter, setting the, the, the college debate aside, the broader debate over what Israel is doing, the role of Hamas, what's happening to the civilians and the children in Gaza, do you feel like the, the sort of narrative on that is shifting among, among at least Democrats? Today, Senators Dick Durbin and Chris Murphy came out and, and were very vocal about serious reservations they have about Israel's strategy here. Does it feel like the tide is shifting? A little bit, because there's a huge gap between where Democratic politicians in Washington are and where Democrats are on the ground. First of all, because the people who support the invasion do not have good answers to, for the end game. They don't have a good answer for what comes after they topple Hamas. It's very reminiscent of the lack of answers that America leaders had when they went into Iraq and Afghanistan. Secondly, because th according to Save the Children, you don't have to believe the Hamas-run uh, health ministry, 3,000 children have been killed in Gaza already, that's more, according to Save the Children, than in an entire year in armed conflict any year since 2019. So nothing good is going to come of this massive destruction of Gaza that we're seeing. I do wonder whether 
we you think we we are getting closer to a more inclusive dialogue what is ha- that is about what is happening here or further away from it there i i, I tend to see um hopeful signs through the day but it seems like a desperately distressing and dark conversation that i have a hard time believing is evolving Look, it is because there is just un- look. Uh, there is unbelievable agony among among Israelis, and there's unbelievable agony in in our Jewish community. I see it all around me all the time, and there's also unbelievable agony and and in, among Palestinians. Um, and so the com- there's a tremendous amount of polarization and pain. But I think there's certain basic principles that we should try to agree on. One of them, the principle is free speech. Not that not you don't have the right to violence, of course, but you do have the right to articulate your opinion, especially on the college campus. And second of all, things like international law and human rights are really, really critical, even when you're at war with an organization like Hamas it's, that, that has committed war crimes and done terrible things. Just as the United States after 9-11, despite what al-Qaeda had done, we still had a moral obligation to try to adhere to certain norms because it was about us. We have to hold Israel to those same standards. It's not good for Israel to commit wholesale war crimes. Peter Beinart, author of the Beinart Notebook on Substack and editor-at-large of Jewish Currents. Thank you for your time tonight, Peter. I appreciate it. Thank you. Still ahead, as presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis keeps falling short in the polls, he is looking for any strategy that might give him a boost. But at this point in the primaries, can he get a leg up anywhere? That's a lot of puns that are foreshadowing... A very interesting block coming up. Stay with us. According to new NBC polling release this week, 43 percent of likely Iowa Republican caucus goers said they would choose Donald Trump as their first choice in the caucuses. Governor Ron DeSantis is now tied with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley at 16 percent. And that means the gloves are off. Are you wearing higher heels than Ron DeSantis next week at the debate so you can look taller than him on the stage? (laughs) I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to figure that out. I can tell you, I've always talked about my high heels. I've never, um, you know, hid that from anybody. I've always said, don't wear them if you can't run in them. So we'll see if he can run in them. Joining me now is Tim Miller, MSNBC political analyst and writer at large at The Bulwark. Tim, the most interesting thing about Ron DeSantis right now is the discussion of whether or not he wears lifts in his cowboy boots. What does that say about his candidacy? Doesn't say anything good, Alex. Uh, I'll let you know that as a former uh, as a former press staffer for presidential campaigns, what you call being in the barrel. It's not nice uh, when your boss goes and does interviews and gets asked about his boots, which happened around DeSantis multiple times recently. I've got some breaking news for our viewers who hopefully are not spending any time watching Newsmax. But just about an hour ago over on Newsmax, DeSantis was asked about this. And and he tried to turn it on Trump in a weird way and, and was like, well, if Trump has the balls to show up at the debate next week, then I'll wear my boots on my head. <laughs> really weird quote. Very reminiscent of Little Marco. I'm starting to get PTSD from the 2016 campaign when you're trying to do this and, and make a joke out of out of the high heels. That is the talk of the town. I, like that is not a sign that you're on a path to a comeback. Yeah, you're just getting PTSD from 2016. That's impressive. Um, but Tim, I think the reason we're talking about the the, 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 the the reason we're talking about the lifts is that 
it's not. So, I mean, personally, I think what it what it gets to is this core sort of belief that Ron DeSantis would do anything to be the front runner. And that explains his policies in Florida. All of it is in service to this presidential bid, which or this this nomination that seems to get further and further from his grasp as the months tick on. And the and the boots are just an indication of the sort of humiliations he will endure himself. Um, to say nothing of the humiliations he visits on others, including the migrants he sent to points north with absolutely no warning and no resources, but that he'll literally do anything. And that's why it seems particularly devastating, right? Is if if the criticism gets at something essential to the character of the nominee, that's when it's something you don't recover from. Absolutely. And it does play into this phoniness, this thirstiness, right? This idea that Ron DeSantis is just trying so hard to be a MAGA tough guy and he'll do anything and he'll be mean to the migrants. He'll be mean to the, you know, kids in schools that have gay families. Uh, you know, he'll be mean to whoever it will take. If only that will make the MAGA voters love him. He'll also pretend to be a tough guy. You know, he'll wear the big boot, right? Like this, it's all part and parcel of the same thing of him playing this part, acting this role of, of what he thinks MAGA voters wants. Because the reality is Ron DeSantis was just a typical Ivy League politician until five years ago, just one that has like a little bit more of an appetite for cruelty than the other Ivy League politicians. And voters can smell that and they sense it on him that he that that he might be saying the words that a MAGA candidate would say, but that, that he is not the authentic outsider they're looking for. Donald Trump is the authentic outsider they're looking for. And then for the minority of the Republican Party that wants somebody that, that's more of a traditional conservative, uh, he's not offering them that either. So he's really stuck in a sour spot on this. Uh, the National Review is is arguing that more candidates need to exit the field to allow Nikki Haley to consolidate support. I'll read you a quote. It is imperative that Donald Trump not be the Republican nominee in 2024. President Trump is currently the favorite for the GOP nomination by a large margin, but he would likely lose a head-to-head match against Haley. Is that wishful thinking from a publication that is decidedly anti-Trump, or do you think that's legitimate? Yeah, I agreed with the first sentence a lot. The Republicans should not nominate Donald Trump. The last sentence is totally the witch casting. I was trying to see who wrote that. I want what some of whoever that, uh, whatever they're smoking. Uh, Look, Nikki Haley can't win at dead with Trump. Uh, A majority of the party likes Trump. That's the problem. Uh, In order to beat Trump, it needed to be with somebody that that MAGA voters, that appealed to MAGA voters. That was the DeSantis pitch originally, and he fell flat on his face. Nikki uh, Nikki doesn't appeal to them. She has a ceiling of like 30% of, of people. So she can keep going up. I think Nikki Haley would be a much better nominee than Donald Trump. I think that that should be a unanimous opinion just, you know, for our democracy, for our country. But that's just wish casting. And the people at the National Review and these other conservative outlets, they missed their opportunity to stop Trump. They had a chance. They should have been pressuring Republicans to to vote to convict him of in, during impeachment in 2021. They should have been going after him throughout 2022. They should have been going after him throughout the teens, for that matter. But But they did it. You know, and they got it. They got it on board, and and now they've lost control of of their own audience. I do wonder, uh, Tim, whether you think, in in fact, counter to what the National Review advises, that folks like DeSantis and Haley stay in this longer than they normally would, because precisely of the Trump factor, the X factor being the criminal indictments and the trials that await him next spring and some maybe summer. Is the is that their yeah. insurance policy effectively? 
Yeah, a DeSantis super PAC staffer actually told me this uh, when I was in Iowa and I wrote about it for the Bulwark, um, that 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 is something that they are considering, right? That they don't know what Donald Trump's legal woes will bring. And so there's an argument for staying in the race, getting the delegates that you get for second and third place. Now, many Republican contests are winner take all. So, you know, uh, this this might not actually play out like this, but it's definitely something they are considering and that they're looking at. Should we you know, gather delegates just in case something happens to Trump and there's a convention fight in Milwaukee. Now, that feels like real fan fiction. But the interesting thing is if the DeSantis team convinces themselves of that, then, then maybe you see him staying around longer and, and harming the extreme outside chance that somebody like Haley could make a comeback. We'll be talking about his shoes till September. Tim Miller, thank you for your time tonight, my friend. That is our show for this evening.